You know, Christianity has a very rich history of God's interaction with his people. But unfortunately, a lot of people have what I would call a history aversion. Uh, They think old is bad. A new is good and better. So don't bother me with irrelevant or dead history. The result, I think, is that sometimes we can be ignorant of our roots, fascinated with just our present experience. And our faith then only runs surface deep. When we operate this way, our understanding of the culture or moral issues that plague and divide us are often covered just in personal opinion with little or no biblical history or understanding. We, we throw in a couple of Bible passages, usually out of context, to make our case. We cover it with a cacophony of friends who agree with us and then encase it with ironclad certainty. That's a formula to keep us from examining our own house of cards while ridiculing anyone who disagrees with us. We have a standard for truth, and it's the Scripture. And we need to let it breathe and speak for itself. And we as a fellowship need not apologize for that foundation, need not apologize for biblical literacy, And may we learn from church history as well as we hearken back to brothers and sisters of the past who can be our our tutors. I make this brief case about church history, about biblical history, because we are in our last message on prayer, and I'd like to reach back to an unlikely source, and that is the Old Covenant. Now, before you check out, I ask that you listen to the whole message and that you prayerfully consider what's being said. Here's the case. All of the laws, Old Testament laws, all the ceremonies, the special instructions, the external displays of the Old Covenant, they had a purpose. It wasn't just like, you know, God thought he'd waste his time and do all this rigmarole over here. They had a purpose. Specifically, it pointed to Christ. That there was something better to come in the Messiah, in the new covenant, in Christ. The system of the old covenant was to be fastidiously followed But it was temporary. It was waiting. It was looking for something better. And God promised a better covenant in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah 31, where it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The big difference is now 
under the new covenant, Christ will be in the hearts of believers. It's not marked by a host of external laws or ceremonies. In fact, the New Testament says that the law is fulfilled in Christ. Every law was fulfilled in Christ because he perfectly lived out the law. Every ceremony for purification was fulfilled in Christ because Christ himself had no sin. Every sacrifice was fulfilled in Christ because when he died on the cross, his sacrifice, in fact, was permanent, eternal, perfect. Hebrews would later say, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. So the new is superior to the old. But part of the old system was something called the Ark of the Covenant. It was a box that God had his people construct. And it was to be carried around wherever they went as a sign of his presence with his people. And you might remember stories from the Old Testament that if they would forget to take the ark with them, in other words, if they forgot to depend upon the presence and power and promises of God, then they would face dire circumstances, often being defeated in battle. Now, under the new covenant, though, we no longer have to be in a temple We don't have to be near the ark to be in God's presence because Christ dwells in the hearts of his people. The ark was the most special possession of the people of God under the old covenant. So special, in fact, that Steven Spielberg made a movie about Harrison Ford looking for the ark. And so you know that if Hollywood validates it, it must be true and it's special. That's how we know. God gave very exact specifications for how the ark was to be built in Exodus 25. It's not the only place, but it's one of the places that we have these specifications. It was just under four feet long, 27 inches wide, 27 inches high. It was made of acacia wood. It was overlaid with gold inside and out. It had rings of gold at each corner so that long poles could be put through the rings and it could be carried. On its lid was what was called the mercy seat. Again, pure gold with two golden cherubim or angels at each end. And inside the ark were three items. Three items. One of these were two tablets of stone that had written on them the Ten Commandments. These tablets were a record of God's law, God's instruction to his people that they were to follow. There was also a jar of manna 
It was the substance that God provided for his people while they were in the wilderness after escaping bondage in Egypt. It reminded them of God's provision. And then there was the staff or rod of Aaron. Aaron's rod was the one that turned into a snake in Pharaoh's court or the one that God used to turn the water into blood while in Egypt. And it was Aaron's rod that summoned the plagues of the frogs and the gnats. Aaron's rod served as a testimony of how God intervened in the life of his people, of the, of the power of God on behalf of his people. So all three of these items in that special box that reminded Israel of their responsibilities before God with the law, of God's provision because of the manna, and of God's power and intervention with Aaron's staff. In fact, the testimony of of God's activity was so significant in the life of Israel that in other places, this ark was referred to as the ark of testimony. The ark of testimony. We read in Exodus 25, 22, there I will meet with you and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Now the importance of the people of God remembering how he had worked in and through them was so significant that in the most prized possession of Israel, God had inserted three items. And these items had a story to tell. These items were to be remembered by the people of God as a testimony of how God had worked on their behalf. And their testimony was to give God glory. And it was to remind them to strengthen their own faith. I ask you this. If God inserted these things in the ark of testimony to celebrate what he had done under an inferior old covenant... How much more are we to celebrate and recognize what God has done for us under a superior new covenant? What can we take away from this history of the Ark of Testimony? Number one is that our testimony is especially helpful during hard times. The first time the Ark is called the Ark of Testimony is in Exodus 25. It was right after the Israelites had escaped from the bondage in Egypt. And they were just starting out now on their trek in the wilderness. And the last time we hear of the Ark of Testimony, or the Ark of the Covenant being referred to as the Ark of Testimony, is in Joshua 4.15. It's when they were crossing the Jordan, leaving the wilderness, entering the Promised Land. And so this ark of testimony was only referred as such while Israel was in the wilderness. Perhaps it's because we are prone to forget God's goodness, God's provision, 
God's instruction while we are in our own wilderness, while we are facing difficult times. We would do well to remember that our testimony is used by God to lift our faith, especially in difficult times. Now, we're not just talking about rattling off mundane details of what happened in our life. A testimony is a personal story of how God was good to us, how God demonstrated his power, how God provided for us. It was important to God then, and it is even more important now under the new covenant that believers recall God's activity for his glory and for the encouragement of others. Second thing we notice about the Ark of Testimony, that our testimony is to focus on our need to depend upon the presence and power of God. There's a story in Numbers 14 about Israel being defeated in battle by the Amalekites and Canaanites. And we read about this in verses 39 through 45. It says this, When Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly. And they rose early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country, saying, Here we are. We will go up to the place that the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. But Moses said, Why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord when they will not succeed? Do not go up, for the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword, because you have turned back from following the Lord. The Lord will not be with you. But they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the Ark of the Covenant nor Moses departed out of the camp. Again, the Ark being a sign of God's presence with them. They left it. Eh, we don't need that. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in the hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. By going up without the ark, without the testimony, they went in their own strength. They declared to God and to everybody else their self-dependence. And as a result, they met up with disaster. See, every testimony we give is to show the power and presence of God, how that has helped us endure. The psalmist said this, blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. We also see that every Christian is to play a part in having a testimony for the glory of God. There's an interesting fact about the Ark of Testimony. Now, we might assume because there were two poles that there were to be four people, one on each end of the poles, uh, to carry the ark. What's interesting is that despite all the specificity given about the ark of testimony, the ark of the covenant, nowhere is there instruction as to how many people should carry it. We just assume there's four, but it never says how many are to carry the ark. We know that certain people were given the task, but we're not told with specificity how many people were to do it. In addition, nowhere did God specify how long the poles were to be to carry the ark. You say, Kevin, why are you getting off on these irrelevant details? Well, 
I believe that every word is inspired by God. Amen? In the scripture. Now, what we do know about the poles in 2 Chronicles 5.9 is that they were long. It says, and the poles were so long that the end of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary in 2 Chronicles 5.9. So if God breathes every word of Scripture, could it be that God had a purpose in not saying how long the poles were other than just saying they were long and in not specifying how many people were to carry the ark? In other words, there was not a limit given to how many people could participate in carrying the ark. And the ark was the sign of God's presence. Could it be the implication is that God is saying there's room for people to get close to the presence of God? There's room for all of us to share in that presence? See, as believers in Jesus Christ... We all have our portion of the presence of God. We share in his testimony and in his goodness. God's not desirous that any of us get shut out or think that there's no room. The New Testament book of Hebrews is an extended comparison of the the old covenant with the new and the superiority of the new covenant in Christ in fact, we read in Hebrews 10, and this is a common theme throughout Hebrews 10.1, for since the law has but a shadow of the things to come instead of the true form of those realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. In other words, the, the new is better than the old. The law is just a shadow that points to greater things in Christ. He's far superior. But then we're given instruction as to how we're to respond to this superiority of the new covenant. And it's later on in the chapter, verses 19 through 25. It says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Just think of this. No longer do we have to do these fastidious rules. We can approach God with, with confidence because of the work of Christ. Amazing truth. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold, and these are all allusions to kind of the the, the Old Testament system that he's sprinkling in and just saying, now this is so much better under the new. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. So what does Hebrews tell us? It tells us that we have a responsibility to draw near to God. We must hold fast to those things that are true in Christ that form our our confidence and our hope. And then verse 24 says, we are to stir up one another. We are to encourage one another, not just to meet together, but by our relationship, by our testimony, encourage each other. 
My friends, that is a responsibility for all of us. And you know the easiest way to do that? Share your testimony. Share what God has done in your life. It's a way to glorify God. It's a way to encourage others. The most educated and theologically versed person cannot compare to a first-person account of one who's been with Jesus. One author said this, our churches are filled with hearsay. What we need are witnesses with first-person testimonies. We don't get a testimony in seminary. We get a testimony by being tested. And if we pass the test, we get a testimony. That testimony is far is worth far more than any seminary degree can afford. And the first-person experience with God will override any of our inadequacies. Peter and John were described as unschooled, ordinary men, yet the Jewish council was amazed at their boldness. It simply says that they took note that these men had been with Jesus. <laughs> My dear friends, our sharing our testimony of answered prayer, I want to suggest to you, gives God glory and encourages other brothers and sisters in Christ to look to him, to depend upon him. And all we do is just share what happened. First person accounts. This is what I want us to do. Take your bulletin right now. You could take your smartphone. You could take anything to write on, okay? Take it right now. Get it out. Everybody get something to write on, okay? I want you to write down right now as specific as possible, how God has moved in your life, how God has answered prayer. And write this down. And I want to encourage you. You know what you're doing? You are taking part in worship. Because by recounting these things, this is your testimony. This is what you can offer to God to give him glory. Do it now.